question the important issues of today and try to find a sort of spiritual connection? Welcome to Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman as your host. Religion deals with the most fundamental issues humans face. There are arguments for and against the existence of God, where religion belongs in everyday life and a number of questions left unanswered. This is where it all gets discovered. Now, here is Father John Holloman. Hello, good to be back with you again. Before I get started this week, I thought I would reiterate something you may have missed that I said earlier. And that is, there is a common perception nowadays that scripture, because it was written so long ago by by ancients, um, is no longer relevant and has anything to say to our modern world. And what I'm trying to do is to show that that's not the case. That they face the same agonizing dilemmas that we face today in different terms, but the dilemma is the same and the agony is the same. And trying to show that um, this is um, a misperception, that there is some, some kind of break between the past and the present. Now, last week when we ended up, we were talking about um, the second Isaiah and the the imminent release of the people in Babylon to go back home to Israel or Judah. Um, One of the most powerful um, part of his writings, which begin with chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah, it goes through chapter 55, uh, is it something called the suffering servant. This can be found in four passages in chapter 42, 49, 50, and chapter 52. Now, in one place, the servant is identified with Israel, chapter 49. Yet again, he is said to have a mission to Israel. Uh, in other words, an individual probable solution of this is that an individual can incarnate the whole community. Just as when Abraham is talked to about in the Old Testament, it's not just talking about Abraham as an individual, but as the head of a whole um, operation, a, a community of people who were with him when he moved um, back across the Fertile Crescent. <clears throat> So, in other words, the one includes the many in a spiritual unity that binds all generations together. It's unnecessary to choose between an individual and a corporate interpretation of the servant. Both are true. The main thing to remember is that he is God's agent who raises to the nations in a quiet way, in contrast to the methods of a military conqueror. And this is what uh, Jesus ran up against in his time. He typifies the meek who will inherit the earth. There's a sense in which he is a future figure, but yet also in the present age. The future can enter the present. The power of the coming kingdom can be felt in the old order. And this is not just a message of deliverance, which would be just nationalism. 
but it's, it's a vision of God being glorified through the servant's universal mission. Israel's nobility is her task, her service. This mystery of the servant's calling is that he will be highly exalted through suffering. Um, it is through the suffering of the servant that God inaugurates his kingdom. He is and will be a man of sorrows, whose garb of humiliation will be removed in the end, and all will come to know who he really is. The nations will be astonished, and kings will bow in reverent silence before him. It had been thought that he was afflicted by God for his sins, but it turned out that all along he had been suffering in their stead. His suffering was vicarious for the nations. Unlike most sufferers, he did not cry out in bitterness and self-pity, but bore his cross silently without complaint or vindictiveness. He's not just another martyr who manages to grin and bear it. God is identified with and involved in his voluntary sacrifice. Now, in other ancient religions, sacrifice was a technique for controlling the will of the gods to get them to do what you wanted them to do. Not so for Israel. It is a two-way street in which God approaches man in grace and man responds in faith. Here, the theology of sacrifice attains its highest expression in the Old Testament. The servant is led like a lamb to the slaughter, but his sacrifice was far greater power than that of any animal, for it is a self-sacrifice that is made for others. However, this power is not automatic. It is effective only when those for whom it has been made are moved to confess. Like sheep, they have followed with their own self-centered way and acknowledge that the servant suffered on their behalf. In this context, the servant is not a victim, but a victor. The Messiah was not identified with the suffering servant in Jewish thought. That revolutionary identification was carried out mostly in Christian circles. However, as Second Isaiah asserted, God's thoughts far exceed human comprehension. His ways excel even the most noble human striving. There is a sense in which the servant represents the true Israel. Whenever the humble worshiper lives in such close fellowship with God that his suffering is born willingly, we become a part of God's power for restoring and renewing humankind and fulfilling the task. And that's what is involved with the expression that some people use when they're in the midst of suffering. They say, I offer it up. It's identifying with Christ's sacrifice. And as such, it is something that can be redemptive. It can be purposeful. Um, This view of suffering lets us know it need not be pointless or arbitrary. And this is possibly the most profound clue to solving the problem of evil that we will ever get. Now we move on to the formation of Judaism, dealing primarily with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah originally were at the end of a scroll, the largest part of which we now know 
as First and Second Chronicles. From unity of theology and style, it is logical to presume that the whole work is from a single author whose identity is unknown. He was primarily an interpreter of the past. Indeed, he reinterpreted Israel's history in light of the conviction that Israel was called to be a church, a worshiping community. Now, this liturgical interest is one of the major motifs of his work. For example, he omits unsavory aspects of David's character to play up his role as organizer of Israel as a church. David made Jerusalem his religious capital as well as his political capital. He planned the temple, he organized the music of the temple, and assigned Levites their duties. The purpose was to show that the change of status from nation to church was not an innovation, but a return to David's original intent, which is what they were facing when the uh, Jews were released by Cyrus the Persian after he conquered the Babylonians. He allowed all captive peoples to return to their native home. <clears throat> so they were, they were dealing with the problem of, you know, how do we establish our new identity? Um, now, the return from Babylon was not a mass exodus, but small groups immigrating over several generations. I like to use the analogy of Ameri wagon trains in the American West. Rebuilding of the temple went very slowly. After the Samaritans, um, who, the, who were the people behind, there were two uh, shipments of exiles from, from Judah. And the Northern Kingdom had already been uh, demolished by the Assyrian Empire, which preceded the Babylonian one. And the, but there were still people there who uh, believed in Yahweh and accepted the Ten Commandments and things like that. They came to be known as Samaritans because Samaria was the capital of the Northern Kingdom. The Samaritans initially offered to help the people coming back to rebuild. But for reasons which we don't know, that offer was rejected. And after that, the Samaritans opposed the rebuilding of the temple and caused work to be interrupted towards the end of Cyrus's reign. Um, in the rebuilding of the temple, they literally had to keep their sword and spear and ready, ready to hand to repel anyone who came around trying to mess with them. So like the Minutemen of the American Revolution. This marked the beginning between Samaritans and Jews that led to outright hostility and the building of a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, which is further north in the uh, former kingdom of Israel. <clears throat> now, about 520 BC, the work of the building of the temple in Jerusalem was resumed and it was finished in 515 about five years. The Psalter is sometimes called the hymn book of the second temple because it came to be used devotionally during this time, although many had been composed much earlier. Prophets Haggai and Zechariah were also active in this period. Synagogues came into being 
synagogue is a Greek word meaning we gather together. <clears throat> we came into being to meet the needs of these Jews, those Jews who could not always attend temple services, which had been the situation when they were in exile in Babylon. <clears throat> the life of the community until the arrival of Nehemiah in 445 is depicted by the books of Obadiah, Malachi, and jo Joel. And it depicts a struggling people, threatened from the outside by neighboring peoples and the pressure of a foreign culture, and weakened from within by poverty, discontent, and religious apathy. The Persian Empire that Cyrus had initiated uh, was flourishing at its height. And that brings us to Nehemiah. There's no agreement on whether Ezra came before Nehemiah or not. Arbitrarily, I'm just going to say um, he came after. Um, the memoirs of Nehemiah, which can be found in his book, were written by his own hand. So that this is the only example of a continuous story of a man's career in autobiographical style that we have in the Old Testament. He was a cupbearer in the court of Xerxes I. Now that was a position of great importance and responsibility. Um, he had charge of the the, the king's uh, dining and diet. And also he was expected to sample the food and the drink before served to the king in case somebody was trying to poison the king. Of course, here was, this was in the Persian Empire. Uh, he oversaw the stock rooms and the storage and make sure everything was they had adequate supplies for whatnot. So it was a, a person who uh, was in the company, you might say the, the king's court, who had a lot of influence. Um, Nehemiah heard a shocking report of the dismal conditions in Jerusalem. So he prevailed on the Persian monarch to send him there as governor. He aroused the people to rebuild the city wall, completing the project in 52 days even though some workmen had to carry weapons to guard against the hostility of neighboring people, possibly Samaritans. During his two terms as governor, he introduced reforms to bind the Jews into a unified people. He had a stiff policy of exclusivism that sharpened the division between Jew and Gentile and between Jew and Samaritan. He established two standards for membership in the Jewish community. The first was birth. Purity of blood and correctness of genealogy were emphasized. Intermarriage forbidden. Now, the book of Ruth was written as a protest against this view because Ruth is depicted as a Gentile who became the grandmother of King David. Um... <clears throat> But the other principle uh, that Nehemiah followed 
was loyalty to the Torah and faithful support of the temple. In other words, strict observance of the Sabbath. Now, this was more than just a question of Jewish survival or restoring prestige. It was based on loyalty to Israel's religious heritage with an attempt to preserve the distinctiveness of their faith in the face of tremendous cultural pressures. They learned the lesson of the exile well, and saw themselves as being a peculiar people set apart by God from the nations. And it worked. They resisted assimilation. Along comes Ezra, sometimes called the father of Judaism. He is referred to both as a scribe and a priest. He was given permission by the Persians, perhaps Nehemiah's influence, to conduct a caravan of exiles from Babylon to Palestine, and he brought an important item with him, a copy of the book of the law of Moses, which is mentioned in chapter 8, verse 1 of Nehemiah's book. He gathered all the people into a public square, he being Ezra, a public square in Jerusalem, for reading, interpretation, and renewal of the covenant. Probably the Pentateuch as we know it today. Pentateuch meaning the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, this was probably edited by the priests in exile. This is the point at which it became sacred scripture. In other words, the authoritative canon or rule for Jewish faith and practice. Now, the word canon has only one end in it, and it comes from a Greek word, which means a unit of measurement or rule. In other words, to include certain books being sacred scripture, they had to uh, meet certain standards of um, holiness and um, <clears throat> authenticity. Um, so the, the Pentateuch at this point becomes sacred as authoritative canon or rule for Jewish law, faith, and practice. Ezra also went beyond Nehemiah in exclusiveness. He not only forbid mixed marriages, but advocated the breakup of existing ones to get the taint of foreigners out of um, out of their community. And um, so we're hardly the first ones to labor with the issue of uh, immigrants. Samaritans had the Pentateuch for scripture also, but they disputed the Jewish interpretation of its meaning, especially as to who the true people of the law were. Moreover, they never accepted anything else, prophetics, prophets, or the writings, as being canonical. I'm going to stop there because we've got a break coming up and uh, we'll be back shortly. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com 
As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. Are you satisfied with your life? Do you know that more should be possible? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the creators of Access, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane here. Our program offers pragmatic tools to change things in your life that you haven't been able to change until now. What if all of life could come to you with ease, joy, and glory? Tune in to Access Consciousness Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. Who are you, really? Are you the person you want to be, or are you the person that others want you to be? Think about that. We don't always recognize our gifts and potential because we stick to old methods of being and do what others in our lives tell us. It's time to break through. Listen for Rediscovering the Magic of Being with Marja. Each program connects you back to whom you were meant to be every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Welcome back. Uh, We're talking about Ezra and Nehemiah following the, the end of the Babylonian exile. They're back in Judah now. And um, Ezra called the people in Jerusalem together for a reading of what we now know as the Pentateuch, uh, for them to renew the covenant, as it were. Um, and his two primary uh, standards for defining the new the new Israel the, uh, as a worshiping community um, the the uh, principles of birth and loyalty to the Torah. Now, Ezra gave the impetus to the development of what has come to be known as legalism, one of the major characteristics of post-exilic Judaism. However, there are certain things to keep in mind. Number one, he did not invent the emphasis on obedience to the law. From the beginning, Israel's covenant faith insisted that man's relationship with God lays upon the people certain obligations with respect to worship and social relations. And secondly, there is no basis in their faith for the idea the law is just a code to be obeyed. The law is set within the context of the good news of what God had done for his people 
the exodus from Egypt, for example. Grace not only precedes, but is more important than law. And that is something that Jesus had to emphasize in his own time when some of the, the legalists had gone a little bit too far with their um, legal interpretation of the law. Grace is more important than law. Because it was a gift from God, the law was not looked upon as burdensome. The basic attitude was one of rejoicing, which we find in Psalm 119. For obedience to the law, surrender to God's sovereignty, was the basis of true joy. Now notice, um, the priest and the prophet in the Old Testament, in a sense, kind of represent the division between Catholic and Protestants today. Uh, you had the priestly tradition and the prophetic tradition. The prophets called the people, uh, it was the ministry of the word, really, calling people back to obedience um, to the uh, covenant. And the priests were concerned about the rituals of worship. There's a, there's a sort of a rough correspondence there between Catholics and Protestants where in Protestant worship, emphasis is upon the word. And while that has not been lost altogether in Catholic worship, it's still a very important part of it. Uh, there's also the emphasis on um, the importance of liturgy as, as a, a part of the fabric of worship, worshiping God. That we're not there in church to be entertained, but to... Um, show our adoration for God. Um, <clears throat> Jews do not view sacrifice as controlling the divine for man's benefit or appeasing the wrath of the gods, as is true in paganism, but as a joyful gift to God in gratitude for his goodness as a means of atonement, a means provided by God wherein guilt is pardoned and holiness is restored. To prevent abuse, the law insisted that sacrifice is not effective in the case of deliberate sin. And to give you an example of that, and when I when I quote a piece of scripture, I'm simply trying to show you that I'm not making all this stuff up. That it's really there. Um, to prevent abuse, the law insisted that sacrifice is not effective in the case of deliberate sin. In Book of Numbers, chapter 15, verses 27 to 30. However, it is an individual who sins inadvertently. He shall bring a, a yearling she-goat as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for him who sinned inadvertently. When atonement has been made for him, he will be forgiven. You shall have but one law for him who sins inadvertently, whether he be a native Israelite or an alien residing with you. But anyone who sins defiantly, whether he be a native or an alien, insults the Lord and shall be cut off from among his people. Since he has despised the word of the Lord, and has broken his commandment. 
he must be cut off. He has only himself to blame. So they make the distinction between inadvertent and uh, conscious sin. I guess the rough parallel today would be um, uh, mortal sin would be the conscious sin. Um, which alienates us from God. Now, weaknesses in the, this approach. As we all know, ritual of worship is too easily becomes empty forms, and devotion to the law tended to lapse into a legalism that could escape God's demands through clever interpretations. Um, There's a word for it, it's called casuistry. And the Jesuit order became famous for that at one point in their history of their order. Now, the policy of exclusiveness became a narrow and rigid outlook that fostered a snobbish attitude towards those without the law. Finally, preoccupation with the law seemed to stifle the spirit of prophecy, which virtually ceased at this time. When the law written in a book becomes the basis for the community, the greatest need is for scribes who can study it, interpret it, and preserve it. What little prophecy did survive took the new form of expression known as apocalyptic. Now, um, apocalyptic literature, which is seen primarily in the book of Daniel and in the New Testament book of Revelation, um, it comes as so often is it comes from a Greek word which means the, re the revealing or showing forth of um, a divine truth and we're going to talk about this uh, type of literature um, shortly um, but fundamentally it is pessimistic about this world, that this world is so hopelessly corrupt and brutal and uh, devious that it has to be, God has to wipe the slate clean and start over again. Sort of like the idea of Noah's Ark. Um, but we'll talk about that uh, when we get to the book of Daniel. Now, historical developments. Little is known about the Jewish community in Palestine during the 4th and 3rd centuries BC. It is thought that two books were produced during this period. Jonah, a parable which asserts that Jewish exclusivism contradicts God's commission for them to be a light to the nations. And the book of Esther, which takes the opposite point of view. It's a historical novel that does not contain a single explicit reference to God or the religious practice of Judaism. Um, Esther is very nationalistic and separatist. It purports to explain the origin of the popular festival known as Purim. Now, Alexander of Macedon was 20 years old when he began his military campaigns that made him master of the world 
in just 13 short years. He dreamed of a world bound together by Greek culture. Believing that Greek thought was superior, he considered it his divine mission to live an ancient civilization with Greek scholarship, Greek art, and Greek manners. He died just before his 33rd birthday in 323, whereupon his vast empire was partitioned into four large chunks. Two of his generals, Seleucus and Ptolemy, inherited the eastern domains. Ptolemy took charge of Egypt. Seleucus took charge of what we today would call Cyrus. The extent of his thought was much greater than modern Syria. Um, So, Once again, Palestine became the focus of a power struggle between two great political entities. Initially, it came within the orbit of the Ptolemies in Egypt, who were somewhat easygoing in contrast to the aggressive Seleucids with their capital at Antioch. Still, the spread of Hellenism uh, went forward, and Greek became the lingua franca of the ancient world. That was still true at the time of the New Testament, which is why the New Testament is written in Greek. Um, And incidentally, uh, this is just a historical uh, aside. Um, When Caesar was being stabbed to death by Brutus and others, he did not say, et tu Brute, which is Latin, and you Brutus, he said, Kai, kai te, um, and you, my child. So Caesar's last words were in Greek, not Latin. And that's all the result of this Hellenizing that went on, initiated by Alexander the Great, uh, and carried on by subsequent um entities after the breakup. Now, in 198 BC, Antiochus III, known as the Great, won a decisive victory over Ptolemy V and brought Palestine under his jurisdiction. He was a vigorous apostle of Hellenism, and his policies were fanatically upheld by one of his successors, Antiochus IV, who ruled 75 to 163 BC, known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphany means um, a revealing. Um, he claimed to be a, a god. He claimed to be Zeus, manifest. Uh, the Greek is Theos Imphanes, Imphanes, Epiphanes. Theos Epiphanes, God manifest. Now, his initial reason for intervention intervention in Jewish affairs was the need of money, increased taxation, which never makes anybody popular. 
Agantacronism reached a fever pitch, however, when he sold the sacred office of high priest to the highest bidder and enforced his choice by entering Jerusalem with an army, plundering the temple, and shedding Jewish blood. And uh, you can find that account in the second book of Maccabees, verses, chapters 4 and 5. When Jewish defiance only continued, he decided to get tough with the rebels, he outlawed Jewish religion, and ordered the complete Hellenization of Jewish life. Mothers who circumcised their children were put to death, copies of the Torah were burned, and observance of the Sabbath or possession of a copy of the Torah was a capital offense. In 168, he erected an altar to Zeus, the abomination of desolation mentioned in the book of Daniel. Over the altar for burnt offerings in the temple court and then sacrificed swine, the most unclean animal in all of Jewish law, upon it. He was really um, showing him who's who. Well, it's time for another break, so I will bid you adieu until we come back in, in the, shortly. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. The White House Doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's time to transform your life. Start by tuning in to The Glenise Show with Glenise Hughes. Glenise combines business, relationships, wealth, life, and a whole lot of magic to create abundance and prosperity in every part of your life. It's all done through straight and often frank discussions in the best way that Glenise knows how. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Master your life with The Glenise Show. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. 
Hello again. We were talking about um, the reign of Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes, Antiochus because Epiphanes considered himself a deity, uh, Zeus, the chief god in the Greek pantheon. And he took great offense at Judaism, the religion, um, and outlawed it so that um, any mother who had her child circumcised would be put to death. Copies of the Torah were burned. Observance of the Sabbath or possession of a copy of the Torah was considered a capital offense. Finally, he erected an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple, right on top of the old altar, and offered uh, a sacrificed swine on it just to stick it to the Jewish sensibilities. Now, during the reign of terror, many Jews yielded, while others went to their death or fled into hiding. A spark of revolution was struck in a little hill town called Modain, M-O-D-E-I-N, which is northwest of Jerusalem. When a Syrian officer demanded that local citizens make a pagan sacrifice, Mattathias, who was a village priest, flatly refused. When another Jew came forward to make the sacrifice, he killed both the Jew and the Syrian officer. At that point, he and his five sons fled into the hills, where they became the nucleus of a guerrilla force. After his death in 166, his oldest son, Judas, called Maccabeus, which means hammer, led the fight. Surprisingly, they won a victory over the Syrian forces and restored Jewish worship to the temple in Jerusalem on the 25th day of the month of Kislev, which is December for us, in 165, thus inaugurating what was known as Hanukkah, which means rededication or the Feast of Lights. Um, now, this development was favored by international developments, especially Roman intervention in the East. The Seleucids became more preoccupied with defending themselves against the Romans than worrying about what was going on in Palestine. <clears throat> They managed a century of independence as a theocracy. The high priest was the one who was running the country until the coming of the Roman general Pompey in 63 BC. All of which brings us up to Daniel. The author of the book is unknown, but most certainly he was one of the Hasidim these were the ones who were considered faithful in the face of the persecution of Antiochus. Um, his book is a summons to courageous faith. For those who believe that events are in God's hands rather than human ones, they can act without fear of the consequences. Sometimes this book has been called the Manifesto of the Hasidim. It sets forth a theology for the revolution. The author speaks of his own time in the guise of a story that supposedly happened before the Babylonian period. And Daniel is a name taken from Ezekiel, where he is pictured as a traditional pious Israelite. And I'll read you some of the passages where that is the case. 
Um, in Ezekiel chapter 14 and chapter 28. In chapter 14, even if these, a back of it, I'll stretch out my hand, this I being Yahweh, and break off the staff of bread. I will let famine loose upon it and cut it off from both man and beast. And even if these three men were in it, Noah, Daniel, and Job, uh, three men considered people of virtue. They conceive only themselves by their virtue, says the Lord God. Um, also chapter 28, verse 3. Because you are haughty of heart, you say, a God am I. I occupy a godly throne in the heart of the sea. Obviously a reference to Antiochus Epiphanes. And yet you are a man, not a god. However you may think of yourself like a god. Oh yes, you are wiser than Daniel. And there's no secret that is beyond you. Um, so Daniel was regarded as a very wise person. <clears throat> now, apocalyptic literature, as I said earlier, um, comes from the Greek word apokalupain, uh, which is a, ver a verb meaning to uncover, to reveal. The central theme is that God's revelation concerning the end time, the coming of the kingdom of God, when the present um, regime will be wiped out, slate will be made clean so they can start over again. From the first, Israel's faith had been oriented towards the future, toward fulfillment of God's promise to his people. History had purpose. Before the exile, this hope found expression in the day of Yahweh idea. Prophets talked of the future, but only as it impinged on the present. They look forward to the end of Israel's rebelliousness, not the end of human affairs. But now, however, there's a definite plan to all history. The spiritual struggle between good and evil powers as expressed in the historical arena is blown up into super historical or cosmic proportions, which means the final battle must be likewise. Now, we need to be careful here because the dualism between God and Satan is not absolute between good and evil. Um, as it was, for example, in Persian Zoroastrianism. But uh, there are examples in the Old Testament. And I'll just give you um, a quote from Isaiah. Uh, chapter 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live, their corpses shall rise. Awake and sing, you who lie in the dust. For your dew is a dew of light, and the land of shades gives birth. And there you have the, the root of the idea of the resurrection of the dead. But in this case, what's being promised being resurrected is the people of, the, of Israel. 
um, which can be found in Ezekiel's famous dry bones uh, anatomy. Um, <clears throat> this is the first clear reference in the Old Testament to resurrection of the people. But this idea is applied to individuals only in apocalyptic literature. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. The book of Deuteronomy falls into two parts. Uh, I'm sorry, the book of Daniel falls into two parts. Chapters 1 through 6 are stories about Daniel and his companions. Chapters 7 to 12 give us Daniel's visions. The date was around 165 B.C. because that was the date that um, the rebellion succeeded in kicking out the Syrian. Um, so the, the war of the guerrilla war was from about 168 to about 165 BC. The story is set during the Babylonian exile, but with many historical errors. The author clearly is a member of the Hasidim. The message, men must be loyal to the Torah at all costs, for God delivers his faithful ones. The kingdoms of this world are passing, but God's is eternal. In the second part, which gives us the visions, four successive empires are pictured, Babylonian, Median, Persian, and Greek, each surpassing its predecessor in evil and brutality. The accumulated evil of history was finally concentrated in one kingdom, the Seleucid, and in one depraved king, Antiochus Epiphanes. In contrast to the beastly figures, creatures that come from the sea, there will be one likened to a son of man, in other words, a human figure, which generally is interpreted as being the holy community of Israel. Saints of the most... Their everlasting dominion was to be inaugurated after a time, two times, and half a time, which is three and a half years of persecution from 168 to 165. Um, in Daniel chapter 9, we have these words, verses 18 and 19. Hear therefore, O God, the prayer and petition of your servant, and for your own sake, O Lord, let, the face, let your face shine upon your desolate sanctuary, which had been ruined in, in Jerusalem by Antiochus. Um, give ear, O my God, and listen. Open your eyes and see our ruins and the city which bears your name. When we present our petition before you, we rely not just on our just deeds, but on your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, pardon. O Lord, be attentive and act without delay for your own sake, O my God, because this city and your people bear your name. In the last analysis, Israel has no grounds for boasting except in the incalculable mystery of God mercy of God. In this view, history follows a prearranged timetable, and the length of each period is set by divine decree. 
the division of the 70 weeks of years into seven, 49 years, 62 is 435 years, and one, seven years, is too mechanical. But it does have religious meaning. The writer thought he was living in the last days, the last half of the last week. In other words, the days of Antiochus are numbered, for he had insulted God. This is not really a prediction of future events, but a resume of what had already happened. The extreme emphasis on God's absolute control of history was not meant to induce complacency, but confidence that events are moving inevitably toward the kingdom of God to what a small band of Jews could act and hope for, even everything seemed to be against them. In Daniel, there's no mention of the... Okay. Uh, in Daniel, there's no mention of the anointed one, the Messiah, although the expression, one likened to son of man, would come to be interpreted that way. Also, the goal of history is God's kingdom, not a human kingdom of any kind or a utopia of social planning. It transcends and transfigures the realities of history. It's pessimistic about this world. Uh, Contra-Marxism. Um, next time, I'll get started on the New Testament and look forward to how that relates to our own concerns today. I've enjoyed having this time with you and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Thank you for tuning in to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Please join Father John Holloman again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope you have a very good week.